Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about why you should never let your local priest get involved with family squabbles, especially not if you're the King of England. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. This is episode 14, John with the Wind. Too late to be known as John the First, he's sure to be known as John the Worst, a pot on that phony King of England. So, Will, before we jump into your extremely excellent plot summary, one thing that I wanted to give as a quick piece of background for listeners who may not be aware of this period of history, because it's so much earlier than Shakespeare's other history plays, is to talk a little bit about the Angevin Empire. And so listeners may or may not know, England in 1066 was conquered by the by the Duke of Normandy, William the Conqueror. Normandy was a large stretch of land in the north of France. When William the Conqueror became the King of England, he had this inherent conflict of interest where he was the King of England, but also he was a vassal of the King of France. He was only a vassal of the King of France with reference to his French possessions. Henry II, Richard I, and King John, the third of whom, King John, is the monarch at the subject of this play— you know, had expanded those holdings and ruled over what was a pretty sizable chunk of mainland France, as well as being kings of England and also some portion of Ireland. And that today is referred to by historians as the Angevin Empire. And this is important, as you'll hear in this plot summary, because John is simultaneously the king of England while also deciding how to dispose of his French possessions. So on that note, Will... Please tell us what happens in this play. Thanks, James. That's very good context to bear in mind as we set out on discussing The Life and Death of King John, which is set much earlier in the medieval era than Shakespeare's other English history plays. King John depicts the troubled reign of the sovereign best known for hits like the Magna Carta and villainous cameos in the various adaptations of The Legend of Robin Hood. This particular play opens with King John, the brother of the recently departed King Richard the Lionheart and the youngest son of the wily Eleanor of Aquitaine, conducting a typical day of business at court, adjudicating disputes between lords of questionable legitimacy and being accused of usurping the throne from relatives who are ahead of him in the line of succession. He first greets an emissary from King Philip of France, who threatens war if John does not abdicate in favor of his young nephew Arthur, the son of his deceased elder brother Geoffrey. John and Eleanor dismiss the man, and then turn to the complaints of the Falconbridge brothers, who disagree over who should inherit the family estate. Even without the benefit of a Mori Povich paternity test, it quickly becomes clear that one of the Falconbridges is, in fact, not a Falconbridge at all but the bastard son of Richard the Lionheart. This presents John with an easy solution. He gives the other brother the land and knights Richard's son, legitimizing him as a Plantagenet in the service of the crown, though everyone in the play refers to him as the bastard, so we'll stick with that for the purposes of clarity. Meanwhile in France, King Philip lays siege to the English-held town of Angiers, demanding that they recognize Arthur's claim to the English throne. In his retinue are the Duke of Austria, a lord widely believed to have murdered King Richard, and Constance, Arthur's mother and John's sister-in-law. When John arrives, his mother Eleanor and Constance go at it, while the two kings make their cases to the people of Angiers, asking them to say whether John or Arthur has the rightful claim. Cagely, and no doubt under the advice of sound legal counsel, they say they'll support whichever king has the legitimate claim, kicking it back to John and Philip. The English and French armies fight, but the battle is inconclusive. Both sides claim victory to the people of Angiers, who are having none of it. Uh, At this stage, the bastard, who is a top commander in John's army, offers a compromise proposal that everyone should be able to get behind. The people of Angiers are quite irritating and won't let either side in, so why not just destroy the town together? This prompts the citizens to play a little matchmaking to save themselves. Philip's son, the Dauphin, should marry John's niece Blanche, which will somehow give John a better claim to the throne than Arthur. John agrees, offering territory in France and a large dowry to Philip, much to the rage of Constance, Arthur's mother. Just as the whole unpleasant business is to be resolved, Cardinal Pandolf of Milan arrives and accuses John of appointing the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, a massive undercutting of the Pope's authority. The Cardinal excommunicates John and the French decide to back the church in a wild turn of events. Much bloodshed ensues. 
The bastard kills the Duke of Austria, who supposedly murdered his father Richard, and then beheads him. Arthur is captured by the English, who are led in France by Eleanor, John's mother. Before returning home, John asks Hubert, a lord in Angiers, to kill Arthur for him, and sends the bastard to England to seize the wealth of the Catholic monasteries. The scheming cardinal, in turn, convinces the Dauphin to invade England and seize the English throne. Hubert, who has the death warrant from John that orders him to put out Arthur's eyes with a hot poker before killing the young lad, understandably quails and secretly spares the boy, but sends word to John that the bloody deed is done. Meanwhile, John's nobles back in England are deeply disturbed by John holding his nephew prisoner and implore him to release Arthur, only to be interrupted by Hubert's message. The heartbreaking news that Eleanor has died and the less than heartbreaking news that Constance is dead as well. The English nobles, enraged by John presumably ordering the death of Arthur, defect to the hated French. John, now in a spot of trouble, receives the bastard, who tells him that many people are upset with the king for pillaging the monasteries, while Hubert arrives and tells him that Arthur is, in fact, still alive. John sends word to his nobles to reconcile with them, only for Arthur to jump off the walls of Angiers, killing himself either intentionally or as a consequence of the dumbest escape attempt in history. Needless to say, the nobles are not persuaded by John's claims that he had nothing to do with the situation. So John decides to go, hat in hand, to the cardinal, swearing allegiance again to Rome in exchange for the church, negotiating a peace with the French, and sending his one true friend, the bastard, to marshal his armies in case the plot doesn't work. It doesn't. The Dauphin doesn't buy it and battles the bastard, with the French reinforcements fortuitously wrecked in the English Channel by a sudden storm. A dying French noble persuades the English rebels to defect back to John, claiming that the Dauphin plans to kill them after the fighting's done. Then offstage, the rapid denouement. John is poisoned by a disaffected English monk who is upset with the monasteries losing their gold. The bastard, enraged, prepares to attack the Dauphin, only for news that the cardinal has negotiated a peace. John dies and the nobleman pledge fealty to his son Henry, as the bastard declaims, O oh, let us pay the time but needful woe, since it hath been forehand with our griefs. This England never did, nor never shall lie at the proud foot of a conqueror, but when it first did help to wound itself. Now these her princes are come home again, come the three corners of the world in arms, and we shall shock them. Naught shall make us rue, if England to itself do rest but true. Thank you, Will. That was fantastic and uh, sums up what I found to be a fairly labyrinthine plot with too many twists and turns uh, for for my liking, personally. Yes, I I would have to agree with that. (laughs) I know we have a bunch of things to talk about here. However... Where I wanted to start is with John and Philip negotiating outside the walls of Angers and have a little politics corner. As our resident political maven on the pod, I thought you could maybe shed a little bit of light on what's going on with these negotiations because I have to say, and again, I'm no expert, but I have to say that I found the deal that John makes to be a little bit baffling. So there's Two things that happen. One, the bastard proposes a deal between John and Philip that the English and the French should join forces and attack Angers together and destroy it. And then Hubert proposes another solution whereby the citizens of Angers will acknowledge John as the king, but John will marry his niece Blanche to the Dauphin of France. And and basically the French will then agree to recognize John's claim rather than Arthur's. Now, when I say it like that, you know, that agreement kind of makes sense in my mind. But then you get to the terms that John actually himself proposes to France, which they seem to be licking their chops about when they hear it, where John says her dowry, i.e. Blanche's dowry. Her dowry shall weigh equal with the queen. For Anjou, fair terrain, main poitiers, and all that we on the side the sea, except this city by us now besieged, bind liable to our crown and dignity shall gild her bridal bed and make her rich in titles, honors, and promotions as she in beauty, education, blood holds hand with any princess of the world. Now, admittedly, I am no expert on the politics around medieval dowries and marriage contracts between medieval monarchs. However, it does seem to me that John's giving away an awful lot 
in this agreement. So my questions to you are one, what do you think about the negotiation process of this deal? Two, what do you think about the deal that John actually made? And three, what would you recommend to John to do in this context? These are great questions. Uh, I think one of the challenges in assessing John's negotiating position is you don't really have too much of a glimpse of how these provinces fit in to his country. I mean, they could be dead weight. I don't think that they are, but they could be dead weight. So maybe he's better off rid of them. You also don't necessarily know how concerned he is about the legitimacy of his claim being undercut at home. And if he feels like his position is quite precarious, there might be an incentive to get a deal at all costs. But I feel like the events in the play indicate that he's negotiating in a bit of haste and is giving up too much in exchange for too little. He doesn't really get the security that he wants, obviously, because Arthur is still going to be in France. And as we see, the French turn on a dime the moment that the papal emissary rides in, and they turn on him based on something that he is doing within his own realm that doesn't really affect the French at all. So he's not really getting much security out of this pledge. And, you know, to make matters worse, right, he orders Hubert to go kill Arthur, which only inflames his own nobles after him. So really, there's probably a better deal to be sought here by which he gives up a little bit less and maybe secures his throne a little bit more pleasingly to the nobles at home, while also basically securing the claims against the French. So I feel like it's a deal that he makes in haste. Now, we don't know what the military balance is between the French and the English, but we presume that they're about even since they're fighting to a standstill at multiple points in the play. It's hard to know exactly what's going on there, but you would presume that he would have a little bit more leverage than his decision makes. And I think he's negotiating from a place of of fear in this particular situation. And he's sort of trying to appease the French, and I'm not sure that it's really the best decision that he makes. So in the follow-up to this, there seems to be a, a hand wave to reconciliation. You know, John says, we'll create young Arthur, Duke of Brittany, and Earl of Richmond, and this rich, fair town we make him lord of. And then he says that, in some measure, I'm not going to quote it in full, but basically then says that they're going to also make it worth Constance's time to sort of acquiesce to all this. Right. So and, go for it. Tell me. No, no, no. So yeah, so this is this is actually a really interesting point, and it touches on a dynamic that's in this play throughout. So part of the problem, right, is this idea that you can buy off Arthur and particularly Constance. Because Constance is a very impassioned figure, and this is clearly about more than just land and lesser titles. It's about honor and the claims to the throne. And if you go back to Thucydides, right, people end up going to war over fear, honor, and uh, fear, honor, and interest, right? And in this case, honor is the type of conflict where you don't really resolve it by paying people off, right? If anything, you're only inflaming them further, which is why Constance is literally tearing her hair out later on when her when her son gets captured. Arthur is young, maybe relatively weak-willed. Yeah, you get the sense Constance was really the one driving the Arthur train. You know, it feels like Arthur is going along with what his mom wants. I don't know if you got that impression, but that was yeah, what it felt yeah, like to me. Yeah, you get the sense he's kind of a vehicle. I mean, in the same way that Eleanor of Aquitaine is famously longtime power behind the throne and was queen regent, I believe, for Richard for a long period of time, and then advised John quite closely. It's interesting that you have these two strong female characters who play these roles in the background of advising and even commanding in the case of Eleanor in France. So you have these characters, though, and, and you realize it's about way more than just this transactional deal to Arthur of like, well, we'll give you a title and some land and Constance, we'll make it worth your while financially, you know, and in terms of securing your family's future. But it's not really about that. And I think you see this also a little bit with the way the bastard treats all of the horse trading and the peace efforts, where it's like, look, once you're at war, people have been killed. 
the French are the enemy, right? If you're coming from the Bastards perspective, you start losing sight. And, and similarly with Constance, you know, and to a lesser extent, Arthur, if you feel like your claim is just, it's not going to just dissipate because some money changes hands. Like these aren't demands that are piecemeal. You know, it's kind of an all or nothing thing for some of these people. And once a war starts, it gets harder to get out because people often become more committed to winning because they want the costs to have been worth it in the end. And to some degree, right, like the bastard is an expression of the sort of the Clausewitz trinity you're talking about, passion, reason, and chance, and that's what shapes war. Well, you get a little bit of all three in King John, but certainly passion starts overrunning reason. And the deal that John crafts, it may be a bad deal for him, even from a rational assessment of what he's giving up. But it certainly understates the ability of these horse trading deals to prevent conflict in the future, right? And he sort of gets that, but... So, so you know, there, there's a lot in what you just said, and I found my mind going in a couple of different directions as you said it. I think the most pertinent question that came into my mind or that comes into my mind from what you're saying is... The question of what is the constituency that John really needs to convince by doing this deal? Is his primary concern that he needs to get the French, you know, his foreign enemy, to recognize his titles because the French are the largest threat? Or is it more that he needs to convince his own nobility, uh, which I think a little bit goes to the reconciliation bit, there is a point later on where the nobles are complaining, even before Arthur is not not as killed, but even before the nobles believe that Arthur has been killed, they're sort of remonstrating to John, you know, that he shouldn't be treating his nephew this way, and they want Arthur brought back into the fold of the kingdom. So, sorry, I feel like I pulled that question in two different directions, but I think at, at the heart of it, it's the question is, who does John really need to convince with what he's doing? Like, right. Who is, right. Who is the political actor that he needs to most influence, and is what he's doing properly geared towards doing that? John has three problems. He has the problem of France, which is the most immediate military issue, the largest opposing army. Then he has his own nobility and their relationship with Arthur and Constance and his sort of internal security problem related to that. And then third, he actually has the problem that the Catholic Church poses, where this conflict with the church, right, is a question of international legitimacy for John and him being excommunicated and being involved in that conflict. The church represents like a third problem that he needs to dispense with in this situation because it leaves him vulnerable to the French flipping on him, which is exactly what they do the moment that the cardinal rides into town. So he's got these three different problems. What's the most pressing? You can see why he wants to sever Arthur's claim because it's very much bound up within the French military threat, and that's what he's most focused on. And it's very telling, right, that he has no plan to deal with the Catholic Church when it rides in. And mm -hmm. in some ways, right, if he had internal security, he could defy the church, you know, and had the, the allegiance of his nobles. If he was willing to flip on the church, he might be able to prevent the French threat from getting too crazy, and he might be able to deal with Arthur and Constance and the challenge they pose. But basically, my, my point is, he's got these three problems, and you can only really deal with two of them at a time, and he's choosing the ones, by excluding the church from the equation, he's putting himself in a bad position because he's not dealing with the downside risk of the church riding in and convincing the French to go in the other direction. And by trying to have it all, he defies the church, he tries to kill Arthur, which alienates his own nobility from him, and ultimately, he makes a deal with the French, but the French are not reliable because of these other factors. So he, he sort of chooses the order of how to deal with things in the wrong way. I think he probably should have been more focused on consolidating his security at home and then having mm -hmm. an army that was fearsome to deter the French. And then I think the deal he needed to cut with Arthur and Constance is probably a little bit different. He probably needed to take Arthur as a hostage, but in the court and make him a part of court life where he could keep his 
enemies closer in some ways, not try and surreptitiously murder him in a foreign city in a way that would be extremely provocative to you know his own nobles. So it's not an ideal yeah. situation by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he's got the sequencing of his problems you know, in the incorrect order in some ways. On that note, Will, just, you know, you, you talked a little bit about the religious aspect of this and Cardinal Pandolf. That, I think, is an ideal moment to transition to our second topic, which was this question about Shakespeare and his representation of religion in this play. And I think more generally, but we saw, I think we saw a little bit of of Shakespeare tipping his hand or, you know, putting out some of his thoughts about religion and the church in Henry VI, part one, you know, in the character of the Cardinal of Winchester. But although Winchester was definitely an avatar of the bad side of religion or the bad side of the Catholic Church, nonetheless, Winchester really was acting as a noble within England more than he was acting Mm -hmm. as an agent of an international power. Whereas mm-hmm. in this play, Shakespeare really is, or really seems to be grappling with this idea of the Catholic Church as an external enemy and almost as a fifth column within the kingdom, or, or both as a fifth column within the kingdom and as a driver of negative international attention towards England. So... On that note, I I thought it would be a good moment to talk a little bit about Shakespeare's treatment of religion, both in terms of how it appears in this play and then also how that relates to Elizabethan England and the status of the church in that period of time. Yeah, so I think this is actually a critical piece of background on this play. So in Elizabethan England, there's a national project to make it known that England is a Protestant realm. Queen Elizabeth I succeeding Bloody Mary, and Bloody Mary followed Henry VIII, who of course established the Church of England and broke with the the Catholic Church in Rome. So there's a, a major effort here, and I think these attitudes were quite common among English people at this stage. But Shakespeare has these great lines where he's got his characters declaiming, no Italian priest shall tie their toll in our dominions, and I alone, alone do me oppose against the Pope and count his friends my foes. So there's a strong anti-Catholic sentiment that many of the heroes of the play bear, which would make total sense to people watching this play at the time in a lot of respects. The Pope had backed yeah, the, the and had presentation, The presentation of the Catholic Church is almost... I don't even think I need to say almost. I would say is entirely negative, right? Every moment we see with Pandolf or where John is talking about his relationship with the church or where something happens that's related to the church is of negative consequence to John and to the English national interest, right? I sort of, yes. as I was thinking about this, I came to three overarching themes to the way that it seems to be presented which is like so one the church holds really significant economic power in england and from the way it's presented in the play the church doesn't seem to contribute to the national community Mm -hmm. so like one instance of this is where the church basically incites a war between france and england over what seems to be an administrative problem about john's appointing the archbishop of canterbury Mm -hmm. and john says to the bastard about the church, John sends the bastard to essentially expropriate money from the monasteries, which is, by the way, exactly a thing that Henry VIII does during the English Reformation. John says, the fat ribs of peace must by the hungry now be fed upon. And the bastard replies, bell, book, and candle shall not drive me back when gold and silver becks me to come on. Now, also, I would say this isn't an entirely positive portrayal of John and the bastard, right, who are basically Mm -hmm. saying, we're not going to be swayed by the sacred in our need to get this money to finance the war. On the other hand, there's definitely the implication that the church is hoarding this money for itself and for its own purposes, and that it's not putting that money back into, I mean, essentially into its community, right? So that's one point. 
And Will, let me let me list all of these, and then you tell me what you think about them. Yeah, sure. Two, and this I thought this was kind of funny because it speaks a little bit to some of the political discourse today. The church is basically running foreign interference within internal politics, or what seems to be internal politics, right? And like, yes, you can see why the Pope might be upset about John deciding that it's within his power to appoint the Archbishop of Canterbury. On the other hand, taking that as an opportunity to foment war between France and England seems a little bit extreme. Mm -hmm. And three, and I think this is maybe the most damning thing, the church unleashes forces in support of its temporal goals that it isn't actually able to control. And you see this where the church gets what it, what it wants in getting John to acquiesce to its demand. And, you know, John, as you put in your plot summary, like John goes hat in hand to Cardinal Pandolf to reconcile with the church. Pandolf then goes to the Dauphin to say, all right, we got what we wanted. You need to back off from John now. And Lewis says... Your grace shall pardon me. I will not back. I am too high-born to be propertied, to be a secondary of control or useful serving man and instrument to any sovereign state throughout the world. Your breath first kindled the dead coals of war between this chastised kingdom and myself, and brought in matter which would feed this fire. And now it is far too huge to be blown out with that same weak wind which enkindled it. You taught me how to know the face of right. Acquainted me with interest in this land, yea, thrust this enterprise into my heart. And come ye now to tell me John hath made his peace with Rome. What is that peace to me? I, by the honor of my marriage bed, after young Arthur, claim this land for mine. And now it is half conquered, must I back, because the John hath made his peace with Rome. <laughs> Am I Rome's slave? What penny hath Rome borne? What Men provided what munitions sent to underprop this action. It's not I that undergo this charge. Who else but I, and such as to my claim, are liable, sweat in this business and maintain this war? Have I not heard these islanders shout out, Vive le Roy, as I have banked their towns? Have I not heard the best cards for the game to win this easy match played for a crown? And must I now give all the yielded set? All of which is a long way of saying that the, the church has gone to France to say, we need your support to bring King John to heel. John then makes his deal with the Pope or with the Cardinal. And then the Cardinal's not actually able to hold up his end of the bargain and rein in the French. And it's almost worse than that, too, because the Cardinal is the one who convinces the Dauphin that he has a better claim to the throne of England and to English lands, which prompts the invasion in the first place. So he convinces the Dauphin in some ways that the temporal political question is something that the Dauphin can take advantage of for his own personal gain and interest, in addition to it being the right thing to do to fight against an excommunicated member of the church, you know, a sovereign who's reigning illegitimately. So in some ways, it's, it's almost even worse than... Um, if he had just approached it and said, look, you need to defeat him, he's ruling in contravention of the church, he's undermining our authority. No, it's actually meddling very directly, saying, that thing in England, that could be yours, and you should go forth and take it. And that's what the Dauphin, Louis, is, is talking about in that moment where uh, you were quoting. He's talking about how now it's been revealed to him that this land could be his, that the right to rule could be his, that he has a decent chance of getting it, and that Rome hasn't contributed anything material anyway. So the church should stay out of it now that it's been unleashed. And in a lot of respects, I think that that is how a lot of the Elizabethan era nobility would have seen this at the time based on their own experiences. They had multiple invasion attempts, multiple conspiracies to assassinate Queen Elizabeth. They had to deal with Mary, Queen of Scots. They had to deal with various real and imagined Catholic recusant conspiracies within England. So there's all sorts of, all sorts of issues that they were grappling with and dealing with. And Elizabeth I had been excommunicated by the Pope. 
there had been multiple invasion attempts with fortuitous weather and disasters befalling mm-hmm. French and Spanish, you know, armadas. So it's it's a, a very on-the-nose comparison, I think, that Shakespeare is trying to footstomp here throughout. So I, I think that's actually, it's a, it's a rather interesting example of trying to build what the English nation is and articulate the case of why England is in the right at the time of Shakespeare's writing, not just historically using this example of John. Yeah, and we, you know, we talked during Richard II, during the podcast about Richard II, about the sense of the national community and about the idea of the nation as a self-sustaining or self-reinforcing concept that is very much tied to the land and to the community of people within the land under the king who are set at odds against a world that is hostile to them. And, you know, and you get you get the impression that Shakespeare views, or at least is representing a view whereby the sort of internationalist project of the church is actually undermining the interests of the nation, you know, of the and of the people that comprise the nation. And so John, you know, turning John into this sort of proto-reformer even though he's not a great reformer, I would say, nonetheless, or like, like well-intentioned, sort of to, yeah, 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 but sort of serves to create a historical precedent reaching back where he's able to say both, look, this thing that's going on now has been going on forever, and also, here is a person that we can look to in our past history who was trying to do these things. He wasn't able to do them then because of whatever circumstances he was facing. But this is a model that we can look to as we try to understand our contemporary political situation or international political situation. Yeah, I think uh, one of the challenges with this is you mentioned the word internationalist, and we've been talking about this in terms of patriotism, nationalism. And I think that that is a correct frame to some degree, but it also is worth remembering that there's the perception of the church being aligned with certain powers in continental Europe against England's interests in a variety of ways. So there's a perception that the church is aligned with certain powers and not with others. So in some ways, it's not even really a national, an international project. That's like the the billing, but it's not the way it works Mm -hmm. in practice. And it's also worth keeping in mind that, and this is very true of the medieval world, is a lot of our concepts of national boundaries, and possessions and claims that you might have expand beyond what you might think of as a traditional nation state. I think at the time of Shakespeare's writing, there was more of a sense of that perhaps than there was earlier. I do think that there was a sense of Englishness or sort of the English people Mm -hmm. vis-a-vis the French and others. But you talked about this in your opening statement about the Angevin Empire there is a sense in which, right, that the King of England, with his possessions in France, is a vassal to the King of France in some respects. So they have these weird interlocking relationships and claims on one another. And you almost get the sense maybe John is trying to dispense with his territories to get out from under that weight, which is maybe one of the more positive readings of the deal that he's trying to make, is like, let's just be rid mm-hmm. of everything that could conceivably be a problem in France, and let's just consolidate on little England But it doesn't necessarily work out too well for him for different reasons. But there's this interesting tension of how much the church is a temporal power, how much of it is an international power that's aligned in various ways within countries and without. It's kind of this interesting plastic concept. Yeah, you get at a really interesting point on that too, which is that it's almost like the internationalist or maybe universalist portrayal of the church or idea of the church is not as exclusively a rhetorical device, but is treated as a rhetorical device, right? Where it's something that the church can use, the church as temporal power can use to advance the interests of the Pope in being able to go to to Louis and say, you know, this guy's in rebellion against the, you know, the community of Christendom, I think is the way it might, you know, Shakespeare doesn't use those words, mm. but I think that might be the the type of formulation that would be used in this context. Right. And so the, the there's an appeal to universalism 
that maybe is just window dressing for advancing a certain specific set of interests held by a certain group of people. And, you know, I, I think actually there's some obvious relevance to that in the way I don't will think we need to like get into the truth claims of this, but in the way that there are, you know, people will debate about say the second Bush administration's invasion of Iraq, right? Where the claims right. are about universal human rights, universal values about democracy. And then on the other hand, there's these counterclaims. It's like, no, that's window dressing for a colonialist or capitalist effort to expropriate the resources of that region. Again, I don't yeah, want to get no into blood the, for, like, no the blood actual... for oil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think um, without sort of going down that particular rabbit hole, which is a, a very interesting conversation, I'd point out also the church dynamic is not the only international project that's going on in this play, historically or otherwise, right? So, like... At the time of Shakespeare's writing, there's obviously Protestant nobles and kingdoms, and they often have loose alliances with England, sometimes not, but there's varying religious international projects. But in the play itself, you also have this strange moment where the bastard suggests that the two monarchs ally to crush the city that won't recognize either of their authorities in Angier. And that in its way is also a support of a certain type of ideology or perspective on what rightful government is. It's like, yes, there's the national conflict between them, but there's also this sense of we need to reduce this city because these people are just blatantly standing in the way of us resolving the much more important issue, which is the national claim. But in some ways, standing directly against either sovereign that's a much more radical claim that those people are making mm -hmm. about who should be able to say what and have control over over what's going on. They're defying the idea of monarchy and divine right in its yeah. own terms. I think um, I don't think it falls within the circumference of what we have time to talk about today, but I actually think there is some really interesting ideas that the play gets towards in terms of suggesting a number of different models of monarchy or or legitimacy and like where that comes from. I, I don't want to get into that because I feel like it's something we've talked a lot about on some of the other mm -hmm. history play podcasts, mm -hmm. but like there's a few different ideas that it presents and you're getting at one of them, which is like the citizens of Angers being like, whoever's the worthier one is king, but like, who are we to say who that is? <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Playing one against the other and they're, basically trying to get at the idea of like, you know, we're just going to try to hunker down and then we'll just support the one who wins in the end. Right. The other person who embodies a different vision is the bastard, who's much more of a traditional national patriot who is annoyed with all of John's, despite being loyal to John, he's annoyed by all of John's skullduggery and negotiations. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, look, the French are the enemy. The English are the good guys. We need to fight for England and fight against the French. And this goes back to this Clausewitzian idea, the idea of emotion, reason, and chance all playing a role in the way wars unfold. Chance, mm -hmm. obviously, you can see in the Hubert-Arthur storyline and Arthur killing himself. That's one problem here. There's sort of reason, both of these monarchs setting out to achieve their national aims, and then there's also the emotion side of it, which is it becomes sort of unleashed. And there's a rationale for it. I don't mean to say it's devoid of reason. But when you take somebody like the bastard who is willing to keep fighting because he just hates the French and does not want them to win, there's a fair amount of friction there. There's friction with somebody. Yeah that is willing to say, well, my loyalty is to the people and the land of England, it almost transcends this narrower idea of the sovereign being the person who reigns and has the right to rule. And in fact, when he actually, uh, the bastard, comes to John to report on how the looting of the monasteries is going or the, the seizure of the, the monastic properties, he's like, well, a lot of people are very upset about this because we're taking 
all of this wealth. And on the one hand, there's the parochial reading of that, which is like the monks are upset and indeed one poisons John offstage at the end of the play. But there's also the sense that the money is not being spent appropriately among the people in some sense. And that was like why the people were annoyed at the monks and the, the monasteries. But you can also see why John just taking it and putting it in his own coffers might also not be a great thing. And that's sort of another recommendation right. I would have made to John, which is like rededicate some of this seized property to the people or to the common wheel in one way or another, not just to fund a foreign war, but to earn the loyalty yeah. of the actual people of England and your minor nobility. Well, I have one more thing I want to talk about before we go, mm-hmm. which has to do with the portrayal of John in this play, not specifically with reference to this play, but more with reference to observing how different the way Shakespeare portrays John is from the way I think John is usually thought of or portrayed, you know, in high school history classes, sort of in the popular contemporary historical memory. I think for most people, like if most people know anything about King John, Mm-hmm. probably the thing they're most likely to know is that he's the bad guy of Robin Hood legends, mm-hmm. right? If they know anything about the actual history of King John, they know that he's the king who gave the Magna Carta. And generally, I, I you and I seem to have different understandings of this, or maybe not, but in, what I have always been under the impression of is that John was forced to give the Magna Carta because he was such a bad king. Whereas I think you may have a more positive view of him delivering it to the barons but no. I'm, I'm i'm not clear on your perspective yeah regardless no, I, think, I, I think that he's in popular memory today he's viewed much more negatively and much more weakly whereas shakespeare is portraying him not as i think not as necessarily a good king but as a well-intentioned king who is a model for elizabethan england in certain ways so yes. there's there's a lot of things that I would get into, but let me hear your thoughts on it first. Yeah, so to start with the Magna Carta piece, I think your interpretation is basically right that John was forced to grant the Magna Carta because kings don't give up power willingly, right? They have to be pressed to do so, particularly when it comes to recognizing in a formal sense the rights of you know, the folks that are under them and they can't get whatever they want anymore. I think the the way King John is depicted is in the United States, right? There's um, in the Supreme Court, in the courtroom, there's actually a freeze that depicts King John granting the Magna Carta to the barons. There's a suggestion, and perhaps this is something that's a little bit veiled in how it's presented in that context. Unlike King George III, who did not grant his American subjects magnanimously after being pressed various rights and privileges while maintaining the country, maintaining Englishness in North America. King John granted the Magna Carta and conceded and recognized the rights of others. So I don't think it's necessarily a positive depiction of King John, except for the fact that he was willing to make the concession to the barons mm-hmm. and recognize that he was not all powerful. So less a positive depiction of him and more somebody who ultimately did make a concession that was the right thing to do, even if he had to be right. forced to do it. In terms of the John depiction in the Elizabethan era, I, that's really more about the problems that Elizabethan and uh, Henrician England faced under you know Henry VIII, Elizabeth I, then it really is, I think, about John as a historical person. It's all about sort of finding resonance with John resisting the papacy. He's maybe not a great king. Maybe he's doing a lot of things for not-so-great reasons, which Shakespeare would not necessarily frame precisely in those terms as a parallel to Henry VIII. But Henry VIII question some of his decisions rather questionable or motivations questionable even if the outcome was good so you do sort of see that parallel and then of course the other depiction of john that we all know about is in the robin hood legends in ivanhoe he's depicted as cowardly and just generally terrible which is Mm -hmm. also to be expected since he's coming to the throne after richard the first who is seen as one of the great 
heroes of the English monarchy. I want to hone in on one thing you said, though, Will, because I think in this contrast between what you're talking about, about the freeze of John giving the Magna Carta in the Supreme Court versus Shakespeare looking for parallels that speak to his era— you know, what I really came to as I was thinking about this contrast in the historical memory of him is, I think, a much more broad and also, I think, very relevant to a lot of the conversations that are going on in America over the past few months about statues and who do we honor and who do we remember and, you know, how do we talk about history and what history is correct, you know, where for Shakespeare to contextualize King John as the proto-reformer and, like, finding a way that he speaks to the immediate contemporary political problems of his era, whereas the way that we remember King John as being the one who granted the Magna Carta, mm-hmm. right? It's not like we're doing something different from Shakespeare, right? We're contextualizing King John in the framework of the development of democracy. Yes. Right? Or over the course of centuries. And so. By focusing on that aspect of his reign, really what we're doing is we're focusing on or emphasizing an aspect of his reign that feels directly relevant to contemporary political values. But I think that is really what Shakespeare was doing when he portrayed John as a proto-reformer, right? He was finding something in a historical figure that spoke to the contemporary political issues and struggles of his age. And reflecting on that, it made me think about some of the conversations going on in American public life over, I mean, the last couple of months, definitely, but I think even prior to that about, you know, public art and monuments and whose statue should stay and whose statue should come down and, and why. And look, obviously, those arguments are multifaceted and very contingent on which figure you're talking about. And some are much more complex and some are really not complex at all. But what occurs to me in thinking about King John is how selective our memory of history is and how these arguments about erasing history in giant quotation marks are actually about what we value or think is relevant in history to the present. So, for instance, in American history, I think of someone like Andrew Jackson, who is a pretty controversial president that I personally have very negative feelings about. He's very low on my list of favorite presidents. I think today, if I can vastly oversimplify the way people feel about Andrew Jackson, he's most remembered for uh, not even overruling the Supreme Court, because I don't know if that's the right language, but for ignoring the decision of the Supreme Court and executing the Indian Removal Act. And I think that occupies a particularly negative space in our historical memory now compared to, you know, 50 years ago. And I think 50 years ago and in earlier generations, Jackson instead was iconic for representing the ascendancy of the common man in American politics and valuing the common man over what was essentially an oligarchical elite who dominated American society for the first 30 to 40 years of the Republic. And that's why he's on the $20 bill. So, sorry, that was a little long-winded, but all of which is to say, I I think that we regularly do the same thing that Shakespeare is doing in King John of fitting the past or thinking about the past in the ways that relate to contemporary political and social needs. Does that make sense? What what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I I think that makes a great deal of sense, James, both in terms of what Shakespeare is trying to do with his imagined King John, because the map is not the territory. He's even working off of a contemporary piece of source material. I believe this is derived from uh, Hollinshed. So it's another chapter in this book on the history of the kings of England that Shakespeare had and was reading and used as a source material. But even that is a reflection of what King John meant to the people in Shakespeare's time and and who were trying to imagine and repurpose people from the past for their own needs in the present. And we're trying to find parallels. And we do that all the time. I mean, I think historians try to steer away from explicitly presentist, you know, the idea of presentism, focusing on interpreting people solely by what's going on here and now. But you choose your subjects and you choose your subjects of emphasis based on things that you care about, right? So it's kind of inevitable that some of that seeps in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, to go back to this point of public art and statues 
and just historical legacies in general, a figure like Jackson is is a really complicated one in a way that, say, Confederate statuary is not and cannot be, right? Because even people who are very against, you know, Andrew Jackson's legacy, and I would include myself in that number in terms of Native Americans and slavery and all sorts of other stuff, corruption, he also had this important role, you know, basically expanding the franchise to to people that did not hold property and, and all of that. So it's kind of hard to completely wash your hands of the guy if you're talking about American history. And to some degree, a complex understanding involves recognizing that. But there are many other examples, too. I would use like somebody like John Brown and how he's been reimagined over time. So in the Civil War era... There's obviously a huge split between North and South on their interpretation of him. But the North, John Brown's body, sung to the tune of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, he was seen as a martyr to eradicate slavery by a lot of people. Right. Later on, he was interpreted— Well, he, he's. I think he's an interesting figure because he was— he represented such vastly different things to both sides of the Civil War equation, right? To the North, he was a martyr— for the end of slavery and for the south he was an avatar of just what the north was willing to do in their minds to change their way of life right exactly yeah exactly and in the in the vision of the time right he was seen by northern abolitionists as a kind of john the baptist preparing the way for the eradication of slavery the south he was seen as a fanatic possibly insane and you see the interpretations of him after the Civil War, shift to the man is, you know, a nut job, a radical, by the 1960s, terrorist. Uh, and then by the 1990s and 2000s, he is again in the camp of somebody that could see the world with much more moral clarity than many of his contemporaries. And there's no accident there that that accompanies the shift from the people who are actually fighting the war to the need for national reconciliation and the marginalization of more radical figures like John Brown to tell that story, and mm-hmm. then a return well, to— and, and not to mention, Will, I, I think to the degree that probably from 1917 till 1990, right, revolution as embodied by communist Russia was, you know, the biggest enemy— or was perceived to be the biggest enemy to American power and to the American way of life. And so I think in that context, also someone like John Brown, who was essentially acting as a vigilante, was, you know, was someone who would seem to fall into that kind of dangerous territory, right? Absolutely. I mean, literally advocating for servile insurrection. So if you took that message and transplanted it to a period where labor relations were not commodious and there was the specter of communism and anarchism in the air, you can see how there would be an incentive for people on multiple sides of the political spectrum and in multiple regions of the country to try and redefine his legacy. And, you know, in addition to just moving beyond the Civil War, there's a reason why certain interpretations of the war in the historiography, as that old generation that had experienced it died out, it became more acceptable to say, well, war between the states states' rights, which you know is a nonsense interpretation when you actually look at the historical record, but it allowed people to paper over these things. And I think we do that with controversial figures all the time. And we also sometimes struggle, though, because there are characters from our past who we struggle to empathize with because we don't really have a good grasp on the issues they were dealing with, and it becomes very convenient and easy to recast them according to our present political needs. Should we rank this one, Will? Yeah, this is a great uh, one to rank. I have complicated thoughts on it, so Well, let me begin, because my thoughts are not complicated. (laughs) So, uh, look, reading this play, you know, from the very beginning and moving through it, it, there are so many twists and turns and so many elements. It really felt to me like Shakespeare was trying to consolidate a lot of the ideas that he'd been exploring in some of the other histories mm-hmm. and condense it all into one play that could pack it all in while also introducing new ideas about really really about the religious stuff and about 
some new ideas about legitimacy that he hadn't had in his other history plays. And to me, it just ended up being a complete mishmash. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think the play is basically a hot mess. So I would, look, it's no Edward III. I will, <laughs> you know, I think there's a lot more of interest at least to discuss in it. I can't, in good conscience, place it as far down as Taming the Shrew or Two Gentlemen of Verona. Mm-hmm. But to me, it would fall squarely underneath Henry VI Part Three. So I, I, that, to me, would be my new number 10. 10th out of 14. Yeah, so actually, I'm in agreement with you there. I think there's a pretty yawning gulf between... Oh, actually, you know, let me strike that. I'm actually willing to put this one above Henry VI Part Three, but I think there's a yawning gulf in quality between King John and the next play up on my list, which is Comedy of Errors. So I would put this one at my new number nine, but huge drop-off in quality, I think, from eight to nine in, in mind. I just feel like, comparatively, King John... There's more, some of this is about the themes of the play. Some of it is about some of the situations and characters, which we can get into. But I I found it to be a little bit more interesting than Henry VI Part Three, which is also a play where chance plays a large role and reversals happen. But at least in King John, I had more of a sense of the characters. There was less of a sense of interchangeability Mm -hmm. to me. And... In that respect, I found it to be more interesting. It's also written entirely in verse, which is a little bit more aesthetically pleasing at times. Uh, It's, along with Richard II, the only other play that has that quality in Shakespeare's canon and it being written entirely in verse. So I I guess I would put it both as a matter of art and as a matter of entertainment to me above Henry VI, part three. So it's my new number nine. Uh, what did you think about MVP for this play? I've really struggled with it. I don't think any one character really stands out to me. Even the bastard, I I find, you know, the bastard's quite entertaining, but I don't know that I really found him to be so compelling that he's worthy of being an MVP. I, I guess ultimately I would have to go... Ugh. I don't know. I, I I dallied with Constance as a possible MVP, which would really mm-hmm. be, I think, an out there pick. But I think actually, ultimately, I'm going to go with Pandolf, Cardinal Pandolf, mm. who, as weird as it is to say, I think drives a lot of the action of the play and and is a pretty a surprisingly effective villain for appearing in the play so late. Yeah, I'm going to go with the bastard. I just think he um, he leaps off the page a little bit more for me. He has some great lines. I think he in some ways is a little bit more of a proxy for Shakespeare's views. He gets a lot of the best monologues and sort of interprets what's going on. And he's just a fun character to watch on the stage. You get the sense he'd be at the center of a lot of the action scenes as well. I found him to be an enjoyable character and somebody who was less self-interested very explicitly uh, so, because he renounces his lands and titles, even though he's a son of Richard I. I, I found that to be compelling and interesting. That being said, you know, I, I do kind of agree with you that this play is not quite as good as some of the other ones. Though there's a lot of great scenery chewing in it. Constance and Eleanor, you get a sense, would be great roles for yeah. people to play. King John is sort of an interesting mixture of being a bit duplicitous and cowardly, but also by turns somewhat admirable and sympathetic. So there's a lot going on there. I think you could have a fair amount of fun casting this one. Couldn't agree more. So James, do you have a recommendation for us this week? I do, Will, and in fact, it's going to be a little bit of a departure from our normal Booker movie type thing, because as I've been up in the hinterlands of New York for the last few weeks, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, and in particular, I want to highlight what has become probably my go-to history podcast, which is a podcast called Revolutions by Mike Duncan. Duncan also did a very long podcast covering the history of Rome from the founding to the fall of the Western Empire. And then more recently, he has done a podcast that covers the significant revolutions from the 17th century onward, starting from what we all know is my personal favorite, the English Revolution or the English Civil War, then into the American Revolution. And I'm now into his section on the French Revolution. And I should note that I'm catching up to this. 
I'm listening through it. He's gone much further. I think the, the last one he did is the Russian Revolution. So I've really been enjoying that. It's a great historical overview. He definitely has a perspective and he's a very engaging raconteur of the of the history, but it's not ideological. It's, I think, more the pleasure of understanding a lot more about what these events were and why they happened. It sounds, sounds fascinating. Give us the recommendation one more time. It's The Revolutions Podcast, or just Revolutions, by Mike Duncan. And that's our show. Tune in next time for our show in The Merchant of Venice, in which we'll do our level best to prevent ourselves from dropping in too many Al Pacino clips. Thanks for tuning in to Bardflies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share it with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.